So, anybody have any uh, pollen on your car this week? Yeah. Maybe you went to uh, your driveway and wrote in your pollen a reminder of something you might need to do. Maybe, maybe this week you decided to take your car to one of our friendly neighborhood automatic car washes to get that pollen off. Yeah, the automatic car wash is, is pretty amazing. I mean, I would say next to bacon and Duke's mayonnaise, Italian cream cake, sweet potato casserole, 24-hour reflux medicine, I don't know that there's anything greater that God has enabled humans to create than the automatic car wash. It is simply amazing. And my favorite moment is when the very nice car wash employee points to the sign that says, put your car in in. Neutral. Love neutral. Neutral is such a great gear on my car. See, in the car wash, you, you can't really talk on the phone. So I, I can't return phone calls or make phone calls. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of rocky in there, so I can't really write notes. And, and it's just so short. There's no reason to try to get involved in, in responding to text messages. Man, it's just this, it's this moment. It's 120 seconds of my life that I normally and rarely get. I mean, 120 seconds of of something that's really hard for me to do, and that is sit still. I'm forced at the car wash just to sit still, and, and my car gets clean with me being told to take my hands off the steering wheel and my foot off the brake. I do nothing but just ride in neutral and my car gets clean. And if I happen to have a diet drink and some dark chocolate in the car, oh man, those 120 seconds is like a weekend spa resort. It's amazing. Love it. Love it. Rest, relaxation, and a clean car all within the letter N. Great stuff. But there is a kind of neutral that does not correspond with rest, relaxation, and resort. There's a kind of neutral that does not bring clean. There's a kind of neutral that you do not want to shift into. And what kind of neutral is that? Well, Jesus is going to help us answer that question today. Listen to Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 49. This is what Jesus says. I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. 100 people surveyed, top six answers on the board. Name something that people think of when they think of Jesus. Casting fire on the earth. Let's see, casting fire on the earth. I mean, really, is that what you think of when you think of Jesus? Let's see, we're comfortable with the thoughts of Jesus you know, healing people. That, that's a good one. We're comfortable with the thoughts of, of Jesus, you know, blessing a child. We're, we're comfortable with the thoughts of Jesus teaching a Bible study out on the beach. But throwing fire down on the earth? I mean, that doesn't sound like baby Jesus to me, right? I mean, there's something wrong with that picture. So what kind of fire is Jesus talking about here? Well, some people say that the fire is the the judgment that is coming to people who ignore and reject Jesus. Some people say the fire is the, the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was eventually going to send. Some people say that the fire is the power of the spreading of the gospel. 
how it didn't stay in one place. It continues to go all over the world. And And as Jody mentioned earlier, that it's continuing to go to these last 3,100 people groups who have never heard the name of Jesus. Some people say that the the fire here is the the suffering and the persecution that people were going to experience when they started following Jesus. And really, all of those are appropriate teachings. All of those are realities that unfolded in the early church and even beyond. But when you're trying to, to figure out words and verses when you're reading through the Bible, remember to kind of lean on, on Mr. Rogers a little bit, right? What are the verses in the neighborhood? In the neighborhood, in the neighborhood. Hey, what are the verses in the neighborhood? Sorry, I just wanted to sing. What are the verses in the neighborhood? What's happening in this scene? What are the, the, the instances and the, the moments and the conversation going on? Well, Jesus is in a crowd of thousands of people, but he's directly talking just to his disciples. The rest of the crowd can hear him, but but he's talking just to his closest friends. And he's telling them, hey, you need to be ready for my return. You need to be ready when I come back. In other words, what he's talking about, not just for the disciples, but for everybody in the earshot, was this. You need to be right with God, and you need to understand what it means to be right with God. So in this neighborhood of verses around fire, Jesus is talking about persecution, suffering, and judgment. So in a sense, Jesus is drawing a line of fire in the sand. And he's pressing the crowd, and he's pressing the disciples, and he's pressing me and you with a question. Which side of the line of fire are you on? Which side are you on? And by using the image of fire, Jesus is letting the crowd know that he wasn't playing a game. He wasn't drawing lines for hopscotch. This is a very serious question. On another day, Jesus said it this way, Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. And then he says this, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. This is the language Jesus always uses when he talks about what it means to follow him. He says, you're either going through the narrow gate or you're going through the wide gate. You're either loving me and obeying me or you are not. You're either a friend of God or you are an enemy of God. There is no neutral. There is no neutral. So the question is, when it comes to Jesus' line of fire, which, which side are you on? Which side are you on? You see, the answer to that question is strategic to your hope and your satisfaction today. But the answer to that question is dependent, and your soul is dependent. The eternal resting place of your soul is dependent on your answer to that question. Which side are you on? I was reading a theology forum online this week, and I came across a very interesting comment. It's a comment that that shows us that you can actually be on the wrong side of the line and yet even be a member of a Christian church. This is what it said. There are two ways to live for God and against God, the narrow gate and the wide gate. But on the anti-God path, on on the wide path, there are two lanes, rebellion by rule keeping and rebellion by rule breaking. You might have heard somebody say something like this, oh man, he, he just lives like the devil. Or boy, that, that lady, she ain't nothing but a Jezebel. 
And what they mean by that is that they're trying to describe the person in a way that makes it clear they're not trying to follow after the ways of God. They're not even really trying to follow after basic morals in the universe. They're just on their own. So when you have somebody who is pretty boldly rebelling and breaking God's ways of doing things, it's, generally speaking, not hard to figure out which side of the line they're on. But here's the thing. When you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these biographies of Jesus in the Bible, when you read through the Gospels, you, you come across these moments where Jesus is talking and engaging with people who are very, very religious. But in the language that Jesus uses, he says they're actually walking through the wide gate. They're trying to earn their way to be right with God. They're trying to earn it with good things, moral things, nice things, trying to earn it even with Christian things. But the narrow gate does not work on the merit system. And, and the narrow gate, it, it only has one password. This is how Simon Peter put it, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. There's no way to be right with God outside of Jesus. The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the only way things can be right between a person and the one true living God but there are many well-meaning people that are really hoping there's another way. I was watching a clip this week on something, and I heard a man say this in the clip. I know I've done wrong, but I know I've done good. And I pray to God that my goodness outweighs my wrong. You know, similar ideas along that line. People might say, well, look, I, I did some crazy things when I was young, but... But, you know, I'm, I'm older now, and I'm, I'm married, and I have kids, so I'm, I'm not like that anymore. I'm, I'm a different person. Or somebody might say, you know, I'm not perfect, but, I mean, <laughs> I'm not near as bad as all those guys in Washington, D.C. I mean, I, I'm nothing, you know, like that. Or somebody might say, you know, I, I'm no saint, but, you know, I do give a lot of toys to needy kids at Christmas. And see, what all of those things do is they, they kind of come under this umbrella, this sad and dangerous umbrella that sounds like this. Hey, maybe things will work out. Maybe it'll all work out. I want to share a story with you about a, a man and his cab driver. Jared Wilson is a ministry leader in Missouri. He was in a big city at a conference and was catching a cab to go on the other side of town to meet some friends at a restaurant for dinner. So he got in the cab, and his cab driver introduced himself as Toker. And he goes, you know, like the song. And Jared said, like the song? Yeah, you know, I'm a midnight Toker. <laughs> he said, that was the first time I'd ever heard a Muslim cab driver quote Steve Miller. So they're in this conversation driving to the destination, and they hit it off really good. And they get there, they arrive, and Jared doesn't get out of the car. He, he just kind of keeps talking to Toker, and they end up in a big conversation. And Toker says that he's a Muslim, kind of a nominal Muslim. And he goes on to tell Jared that, that he and his wife are waiting for their last child to move out of the house so that they can get a divorce. He's gotten to the point that he's reading lots of self-help books, and he's trying to figure out what to do with his life. And he tells Jared, he said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to make sure that my good outweighs my bad. That's, that's the way a lot of people think. So here's the conversation between the two of them. 
as they sat in the cab. Jared asked, do you want to get a divorce? No, my wife wants it. She's a very depressed person. I want to help her, but, but she says she doesn't love me anymore, and, and we're better if we are separate. So as soon as our last child goes, she's gone. What does your religion say about that? Tucker says, well, you know, my religion will say, you know, it's, it's not right. So what do you do? Well, what can I do? Well, why don't you try to love your wife? Hey, what do you think I'm doing? He says, every day I just get up and I do my thing. I try to stay out of the way. I just try to get through the day. And Jared said, that sounds like a terrible way to live in. And Tucker said, yeah, it really is. So Jared asked him, well, what would your religion say about that? About what? About just trying to get through the day. And Tucker said, well, they'd say it's not good that I should look on the brighter side. Jared said this. He said, that wasn't the kind of thing I would have expected from Islamic theology. Look on the brighter side. He said, the more we talked, the more I discovered Toker's theology was closer to Osteen's than it was to Islam's. Just look on the brighter side. So the conversation continued. Jared said, so when it's all said and done, what happens? When it's all over? Toker said, when it's all over, well, you, you stand before God. And you hope God's going to let you into heaven. Well, yeah. Well, why do you hope he'll let you into heaven? And this is what Toker said back. Well, it's like there's a big scale. And on one side is all your good, and on the other side is all your bad. And whichever side is weightiest, that's, that's how you know if you've made it. And Jared says, is that, that really you know, what you believe in? And he just let it kind of hang there in the air for a second. And then he asked him, he said, Toker, do you think your good outweighs your bad? And Toker let that question hang for a second. And he said, no, I don't think so. And then Jared said, yeah, I don't, I don't think mine does either. And then Jared writes, he had admitted his good deeds would not outweigh his bad deeds, and I had admitted the same. He was staring not just into a dreary life of getting by. He was staring into the unknown eternity, and I had unwittingly exposed his aimlessness and his hopelessness. There is no hope in, I hope my good outweighs my bad. It won't. It never will. Because the scale demands perfection. And I'll speak for all of us. We're not perfect. Jared goes on to ask the question, so what is it we're supposed to do? This is what he says. Well, we all have essentially three ways to live, by goodness, by badness, or by the gospel. Or to put it another way, law, license, or Lord. Law, license, or Lord. But in the end, the first two are really the same. They are both just self-salvation projects, and neither one of them works. But then there's Jesus. He alone offers a rest from trying to be good enough. He alone conquers our fears of being too bad. And when we see Jesus clearly, when we see what love he has for broken sinners, when we see what hope he offers for wayward travelers, when we see what rest he provides for weary hearts, when we see what joy he pours out on parched souls, when we see what glory he shares with frail human beings, there's only one choice to make. And that's what he told Tucker. There's only one choice to make. And then he says this, in the end, Christianity stands alone, not because it's a better religion, but because it speaks a better word. Christianity is unparalleled 
because Jesus Christ is. He's unparalleled. You see, that conversation just brings us back to this reality. It is not a maybe when it comes to Jesus. Hey, hey, maybe things will work out. No, that's not who Jesus Christ is. It's not a hopeful maybe. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And he is that forever and ever and ever. That is what Jesus is doing when he draws a line of fire in the sand. But, but what does this really have to, to do with, with how we function and, and how we think? Well, let me see if I can put it this way. Jesus is not just looking for people who say, well, I'm on the right side because, you know, I mean, I, I prayed a sinner's prayer and, and I got baptized and I joined the church and, you know, so I'm, I'm good. I, I've got that stuff covered. That's not who Jesus is looking for. What Jesus is looking for is, is people that wake up every morning. And again, they say to themselves, he took my sin. He bore my shame. He rose from the grave. He, he defeated death. The cross, it was enough. The cross, it is enough. And today I'm not going to live like I'm the God of my life. Today I'm going to turn my eyes upon Jesus. And when I turn them away, I'm going to fight to keep turning them back. That's who Jesus is looking for. That's, that's what the line means. And what does Jesus do for the person that, that wakes up like that? What, is the, what does Jesus do for the person that keeps believing? and keeps trusting, and keeps relying, and, and keeps clinging to him. Well, this is what Jesus does to that person as soon as they say all those things. Jesus says, good morning. And he says, you will have trouble today. If anyone tells you different, they're lying. The Lord of hosts, the Son of God, he, he says, you will have trouble today. But I've already conquered that trouble. In fact, I've conquered all the trouble in the world. He says, I have killed the power of sin and death. So you keep believing in me. You keep clinging to me. And as you do, I will help you. I will help you know and feel that my love is real. I will help you know and feel that my peace is real. I will help you know and feel that my joy is real. And I will not leave you. And I will not forsake you. And I will not fail you ever. That's what Jesus says. And just to encourage you, your spouse can never say that. And your kids can never say that. And your parents can never say that. Everyone in this room, we fail. And sometimes we forsake even just for a moment. And sometimes we leave if even just for an hour. But Jesus doesn't. He doesn't. It's who he is. Listen to what he says next, verse 51. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. What kind of baptism is this? Well, it's different than the baptism that we celebrated with Mary and Bailey a little while ago. This baptism is only for Jesus. No one else has this baptism. This baptism was going to be the cross. His baptism would be the cross. Stephen Cole writes this when it comes to the, the picture of what really happens with the baptism of Jesus in this scene. God could not simply ignore the penalty, or he would sacrifice his perfect justice and holiness. But listen to this part. But to inflict the penalty on everyone 
would violate his great love and mercy. You see, on the cross, Jesus was immersed underneath the full wrath of God. Every sin, my sin, your sin, the sin of the entire world, it was laid on Jesus. And through his baptism on the cross, the wrath of God, it was satisfied. The the narrow gate, it was opened. The the narrow gate that that crosses over the line of fire, it it was opened through Jesus. Stephen Cole goes on to write, through the, cross, sorry, through the cross, God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, in Jesus, God accomplishes everything that needs to be accomplished. So Jesus did not endure the torture of the cross, the, the torture of crucifixion. Jesus did not endure the, the penalty of wrath so that we could be casual frenemies of heaven. Jesus didn't accidentally get arrested. He didn't accidentally get executed on a cross at a place called Golgotha. No, Jesus, on plan, on purpose, with love and joy for the glory of God and with love and joy for your soul, Jesus never wavered. He never lost focus. He never quit marching to the cross. It was always the plan, and there was nothing that was ever going to stop Jesus from accomplishing the plan. The plan was going to happen, and part of the plan involved some consequences. What kind of consequences? Well, not consequences for Jesus, but consequences for the ones who were going to follow after Jesus. Look what Jesus says next in verse 51. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. It's got to be a misprint, right? (laughs) That's that's not right. I mean, baby Jesus here, right? I mean, baby Jesus, isn't he supposed to be sleeping in heavenly peace? Isn't Jesus in one of his official titles the prince of peace? So division, this this can't be right. This This is something that got mistranslated through the ages, right? Well, remember what Jesus said. Many will go through the wide gate, but just a few will go through the narrow. In other words, Jesus could have a lot of fans, but a fan is not a follower. On another day, Jesus said this in John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Anybody ever have this moment in your house? I didn't do it. It it wasn't me. Not my fault. It was somebody else. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. Anybody ever heard that in your house? I've heard that in my house a couple of times. Usually it's me saying it. Um, This moment with Jesus is great, though, because it's as if he's looking at his friends and he's saying, look, it won't be you. It'll be me. When people hate you, when people reject you, it won't be because of you They'll be hating and rejecting you because of me. Why do so many people hate Jesus? Why do so many people reject Jesus? I just, just read, uh, I think it was either this morning or last night. I think it was on BBC News. It was, it was a little, I read more than the title, by the way. I, for those of you who come on Wednesday night, I read the whole article. Um, but it was this article about, you know, that Jesus didn't really exist. And so we still live in this culture where no matter the, the height of evidence of who Jesus was, there's still, oh, no, it's, it's a fairy tale. It's, it's make-believe. 
And why is it that so many people ignore and reject and, and act like Jesus doesn't exist? Well, this is why. Because Jesus drew a line of fire in the sand. That's why. Lick Duncan writes this. It's okay for us to be spiritual. The world is, is fine with you being spiritual. The world is not fine with you declaring that Jesus is God, Lord, and Savior, and the one way of salvation. Be spiritual. That's great. It's applauded from Oprah to Dr. Oz to anybody else you want to talk to. Oh, man, spirituality, that's okay. You can do that. Even Stephen Hawking would say, I don't believe that God exists, but if you want to be spiritual, whatever, that's, that's not my thing. So spirituality is not the problem. It's when we begin to say Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. This is what Lig goes on to say. But that is what every disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ believes and must believe because it's what Jesus taught. See, it's not like this is multiple choice. Jesus gave us answers, and, and we have to communicate the answers. There's, there's nothing we can make up about Jesus. He was pretty clear. And so he says division is coming through the gospel, through the message of the gospel. And where do we see that division? Look what he says next in verse 52. From now on, five members in one household will be divided three against two and two against three. And then in verse 53, he says this, They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Well, there's an episode of Family Feud, right? Man, oh man. I mean, that's, that's like 30 minutes of the Bravo channel right there, you know? I mean, conflict in family. So what is Jesus trying to let his friends know? Well, he's simply saying, look, the people that reject you, they might be in your house. They might be in your family. They might be some of your closest friends. And remember, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Some of you know that deeper than some of the rest of us. Some of you experience that. And so what are we supposed to do? When, when someone mocks us and calls us a Jesus freak or when someone in our family or our close friends, when they persecute us or, or press us or, or give us a hard time or even persecute us and, and cause us suffering because we're a Christian, are we, are we supposed to raise up a Christian flag and wave it in the room and go, hoo-hoo, yeah, I'm really following Jesus now. I'm being persecuted. No, no that's, that's not what we should do. This is what Paul told the Romans. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If possible... So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. As far as it depends on you, be at peace. Don't be the overbearing husband. Don't be the nagging wife. Don't be the, the overbearing wife or the nagging husband. Don't be the person who claims to be a Christian but seems to love arguing with everybody about everything. Don't, don't be the professing Christian that is always in a bad mood. Look, we're all going to have our days, right? But it's not supposed to be the pattern of who we are. No, as far as it depends on us, when possible, live at peace. Now, let me say this. Sometimes it's not possible. But for most of us in Casey and West Columbia and South Carolina and the United States, it's usually always possible. See, we, we don't face the type of things that 
people in the Middle East face. We, we don't face our own family members physically persecuting us and sometimes executing us simply because we are followers of Jesus. So generally speaking, we, we can always live at peace with one another. But sometimes it's harder than other times. And sometimes we have to lean on Jesus a little more. And Jesus' promise is lean, lean, lean. I am here. So what Jesus is doing is he's, he's graciously telling his disciples and us that when you begin to follow after me, don't expect the people in the community or your home to throw you a parade. Expect to be rejected. Expect to be pushed away. Why? Well, because Jesus drew a line of fire in the sand. And when people hear the gospel, they, they don't like to hear about that line of fire. They don't like to hear that they're a sinner in need of being saved. That is contrary to what they want to hear. But here's what we long for. What we long for is that they would see what's really on the other side. That that gospel side has something that they want so desperately. And that's love. Real love, true love, eternal love, satisfying love. That's, that's what it means to be on the side with Jesus, to have love that is beyond our imagination. Apostle Paul said, also said this to the Romans, Romans 5, 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So when we couldn't save ourselves, when we didn't even know we needed to be saved, before we even existed, Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died to rescue us from sin. I love what J.C. Ross says about this. Christ is far more willing to save us than we are willing to be saved. See, we, we push. We, we push. We, we, we don't like to hear that, that the good outweighing the bad is not how it works when it comes to eternity. But I want you to know there is never a moment that Jesus Christ is not willing to save. He is always pursuing. And if he's pursuing you today, I, I would plead with you, just, just give up. Just quit running away and, and run to him. Listen to these words from Jared Wilson one more time. Then there's Jesus. And when we see him clearly, when we see what love he has for broken sinners, when we see what hope he offers for wayward travelers, when see, we see what rest he provides for weary hearts. Are you weary this morning? I'm weary. When we see what joy he pours out on parched souls, when we see what glory he shares with frail human beings, there's only one choice to make. It's just one. There's, there's no option. It is so obvious. And then he says this. In the end, Christianity stands alone not because it's a better religion, but because it speaks a better word. Christianity is unparalleled because Jesus Christ is. He is unparalleled. There is no one like Jesus. There's no neutral when it comes to Jesus. He has drawn a line of fire in the sand, but, but I plead with you, if you will truly look at Jesus, you will see something you will never see anywhere else. You'll see a love that the world has never known and will never know. There is no one like 
the Messiah. There is no one like the Christ. There is no one like Jesus. Let us come to Jesus. Let us come to Jesus.